We're looking at the book of Colossians, and last week we, the book took a big turn. And I don't know if you felt it, and you actually you should feel that turn more and more as the weeks come by. Um, what Paul does in his letters is he has this, um, this framework he works with. And the, the, the big theology terms for it are, he always does the indicative and then the imperative. He always, in the beginning of his letters, he talks about who Jesus is, what we have when we live by faith in Jesus, what Jesus has accomplished for us, the excellencies of Christ and His work. And that's the indicative, the statement about who Jesus is and what He has done and what we have if we are in Him. But then the indicative is always followed by the imperative. And so his letters always kind of tend to be application heavy on the back end. In verse, uh, chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, which we did last week, we see that turn from indicative to imperative. He says, therefore, just as you received Christ Jesus, in the same way that all of Christ's blessings, in the same way that you received them by faith, um, so also walk in him. And what he's doing the rest of the letters, he's beginning to give us imperative or commands for what the Christian life um, looks like. And what's interesting is that his very first command as he begins to open up this imperative side of his letter is this, see to it that no one takes you captive. And so that's the first command Christ gives us, um, or in some ways the first command Paul gives us in this letter. And we're going to read chapter 2, verses 8, all the way down through verse 23. And see how Paul's first command, after having talked about the excellencies of Christ and all that we have in Jesus, what his first imperative, his first command is to us. This is the word of the Lord. See to it then that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. You have been filled in Him who is the head of all rule and authority. In Him also you are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him. Having, forgive us all, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Therefore, this is another one of his commands, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or new moon or Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Another command. Let no one disqualify or condemn you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental, elemental spirits of the world, why as if you are still alive in the world do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These indeed have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity of the body, but they are of no value 
and stopping the indulgence of the flesh. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the Word of God stands forever. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank You for Your Word. And there's a lot here. And it's so hard for the truth of the Word to work into our hearts, dear God. And we are hopeless if we pursue it on our own. We are hopeless if we try to work religion into our hearts on our own and into our lives on our own. We find ourselves so often so powerless. Um, but dear God, through my stumbling words and, uh, and, and in, the, in spite of the hardness in our hearts, dear God, we're changing us. Dear Lord, make Jesus beautiful to us. In your name we pray. Amen. Um, growing up really for about the first 26 years, uh, well, first 27 years of my life, my understanding of the peach world was Georgia Peaches. That was the standard. I got to South Carolina. Y'all, South Carolina has their own kind of peach thing going on. and um, You know, it's all right. Georgia Peaches were pretty good. And uh, if you hit them at the right time, you know, they were really... Uh, you know, delicious and soft and sweet in all those different ways. And, um, and I thought that was the standard for peaches. Until just a couple of years ago, I moved to St. Louis and I started working for this man. Some of you all know I was a personal shopper while I was in seminary. It was an amazing job. I have many stories. But um, one story in particular was I was working for Mr. McAlpin. And while I was working there, uh, he started telling me, he started telling me about how he can't wait for peach season. And I didn't know what he was talking about. He said, just wait, Britain. There are 18 days out of the year where these peaches from Northern California are available. And they're called Goldbud Peaches from the Goldbud Forum. He said, it'll change your life. I was like, okay, whatever. I was his personal shopper. I did his grocery shopping. Goldbud season came. I went to the grocery store. The peaches are $6.99 per peach. <laughs> like, don't bring your Harry David and pears up here. This is like serious... Uh, produce right here. They're six ninety nine a peach, and they're about the size of a softball. And every single one is flawless. None, there's no hardness. They're like completely soft, but there's not a single brown spot. They're packaged individually in the crate. They're not heaped into a crate like we're normally from buying. Each one is individually packaged in the crate, shipped across the across the country. And Mr. McAlpin buys. They're six ninety nine a peach, and he buys eighteen a week. For the, for the 18 days that, uh, that they're available. Um, so the first time I had this peach, I was like, I'm fixing to eat a $7 peach. That was enough right there. Um, I had my first gold bud peach, and every Georgia and South Carolina peach for the rest of my life has been a disappointment that makes me want to cry. Um, I've been to the promised land. Uh, the, I... I can't describe to you how, like, I mean, I'm almost prone to say, like, you know what, don't taste it because every other peach is going to be a disappointment. Um, I mean, really, I just kind of, like, I live a life of disappointment in the realm of peaches now because I've had the true peach. Um, I say all that because in some sense that's a helpful descriptor of our experience of Christianity. Namely, that we're settling for something less than. That we're settling for actually what Paul calls here the, sub, the, uh, the shadow of true religion and not the substance of true religion. And what his warning here is, is really this. Don't be gullible. Don't be gullible. 
Don't be willing to buy into these false forms of religion that appear good, it might taste good. When you taste the real thing, it is sweet and it is good. Don't be gullible. Don't be deluded. Don't be carried away. Don't let anybody pass judgment on you or disqualify you. Don't let someone pass judgment or don't be gullible. Don't assume, don't buy into a man-centered religion that says, hold on to the shadows. It's in the shadows of this religion that you have life. And they push you towards the shadows instead of the substance. Don't be deluded by a religion that measures fullness of religious experience by your works. Don't be deluded, don't be led astray by a religion that says that truth is found when you feel it. If you can feel it, then it's true. Don't be led astray by a religion that doesn't give you freedom. That's not the real thing. That is not the fullness God offers you. Don't settle for Georgia peaches. Go for the gold butt. It'll ruin the rest of your life. That's wonderful. But that's what Paul's dealing with here is there's this teaching that's crept into the church that's really giving people less than everything God has offered them. And this teaching is attractive, and that's why there's three warnings. Don't be taken captive. Don't let judgment pass on you about these things. Don't be disqualified by these people's rules and expectations by their man-centered religion. Paul's deeply concerned Listen, there's so much more offered in Christ. Don't be deceived by this false religion. And we'll look tonight at the marks of the false religion. And we're kind of bouncing back and forth to say what the false religion is um, as opposed to what Jesus offers. And the first thing thing we learn is that false religion focuses on shadows instead of on substance. It focuses on shadows instead of substance. In verse 16 and 17, Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink with regard to a festival or new moon or Sabbath. These are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Now Paul is speaking into a specific uh, historical context at this point. He was referring to the Old Testament uh, dietary laws when he talked about food and drink and also to the calendar of the Old Testament. There's this calendar of feasts and rest days and all this kind of stuff that it meant to be Jewish. You observed these dietary laws and you observed these calendars. And in in fact, if you read uh, books like Leviticus and Deuteronomy, there's a very extensive set of ritual laws and religious laws in the Old Testament. But they were shadows of of the substance which was to come, which is Jesus. And so the laws, which he kind of further summarizes, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch of the Old Testament, they were about one thing. They were about demonstrating our unfitness to come before God. If you read all the Old Testament law, they're kind of crazy. They're kind of, I mean, they'll kind of blow your mind. You'll constantly be asking questions like, why does he make a law about this, that we can't eat this, that we can't taste this, that we can't touch that? And as you read it, one thing becomes clear. There's kind of one major point in all of it. And the main point is this. If you tried to keep it all, you would constantly be finding yourself unfit for God's presence. Because becoming unclean, that's what it meant to become unclean, is that you were unfit to enter into God's presence. And so there were cleansing rituals, things that you would do to cleanse yourself. But as soon as you're done performing the cleansing rituals, it would only be a matter of time before you touched something, before you tasted something, before you handled something that would make you unfit for God's presence again. Now, what was the point of those laws? It was this. We are unfit to be in God's presence. 
And the pervasiveness and the extensiveness and the intricacies of those laws is showing us just how unfit in every aspect of our life we are to be in God's presence. We're unfit to be in God's presence. And what we need is we need a full and final and true and perfect cleansing that can make us eternally fit for God's presence. And that's what Jesus did. This is what Jesus came and did. He is the final and perfect sacrificial lamb. Those things foreshadowed him. And now the substance of those things have come, which is Jesus himself. Something comparable to this this would be like Facebook chat, right? There's a sense in which you're kind of relating to somebody over Facebook chat. There's a little bit of relating going on. Not a whole lot, as much as some people would like to think. That's a shadow of a relationship. When the person walks into the room, you don't flip up your laptops and Facebook chat. The true thing is there. The substance is there. And this is what Paul is telling him. He's saying those things pointed to Christ and foreshadowed Christ and He has come. The substance is here and now. Put those things away and look at Him. In Colossae, they've reverted to the shadows and they've said, we're going to cling to the shadows. And they've caused people to feel disqualified or judged because of their lack of performance, their lack of clinging to these shadows. See, what Jesus has done in Matthew 5, 17, He says, I have come not to abolish the law, He doesn't wipe it away. He's saying, I've come instead to fulfill the law. And what that means is it doesn't just mean he did something like keep the Ten Commandments. He actually did do that. But it means something richer and fuller than that. It means all of the law finds its fullness in Jesus. That the reality it was always pointing to but never was able to give is the person of Jesus. All that the law pointed to finds its reality and its manifestation in the person of Jesus. This is actually what he's saying in verse 11 when he says, In Him, in Jesus, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by the putting off of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. I'm not going to explain what circumcision is. I'm hoping most people in this room know what it is. But it was a ritual law. It was one of the rites. It was one of the marks of God's people. And he says here, In Jesus, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. How? By Him being cut off from life. The religious ritual of circumcision was given to Israel to say, He was giving this, God gave this son to Abraham, and Abraham gave it to his newborn son, and it was saying, something has to be cut off for you to be in my presence. Something has to be cut off for you to be restored to me. Blood has to be shed for things to get right between us. And Isaiah prophesied what became true in Jesus in Isaiah 53.8, that God's servant would come and he would be cut off from the land of the living. The sin and evil of our hearts was dealt, the death blow was rendered powerless and dead in Jesus' death. Jesus' death was our circumcision. What circumcision was always pointing to was the substance of Jesus. Jesus was cut off. He accomplished what the law was pointing to. He was cut off and He made us new and He gave us new hearts and He made us fit for the presence of God. So your religious observance and your clinging to shadows is not what makes you fit for the presence of God. The super-religious activity of certain people that others do that oppress us and make us feel like insecure and immature, it's illegitimate. It's actually illegitimate. Jesus is the substance of Christian religion. 
And the application here is what Paul says, don't be gullible. Don't buy into this. Don't be carried away with people that have super commitments to all these super spiritual rules. Now, here's what I'm not saying. I'm going to be careful uh, in, in, in the coming weeks. We'll affirm this is what we're not saying. I'm not saying that following Jesus doesn't involve transformation. Following Jesus absolutely involves transformed lives. Verse 19 affirms this. He says, uh, this teaching is not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourishes it together through Jesus, um, through its joints and ligaments. It grows with the growth that is from God. When the body holds fast to Jesus, it does grow. People are changed by the gospel. I'm not saying people aren't changed by the gospel. What I'm saying is this. Is it a transformation that is focused on, that is finding glory in, that is resting in, that is always starting with, that is seeing the the transcendent beauty of Jesus? Rules can change outside behavior. Paul recognizes that. They have the appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion. But rules can't produce love in our hearts. Only Jesus can. And how are some of the ways we oftentimes disqualify people by religious observance. The easy things to pick on, right? Quiet times, prayer groups, all that kind of stuff. Religious activities. If you perform these religious activities and they give you a sense of superiority of other people, what it means is your life and your value is in your clinging to the shadows and not to the substance. Your your participation in those activities, if your participation in those activities are what makes you feel superior to the world, you have defined yourself by the shadows and not by the substance. Now, here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying don't read the Bible. I'm not saying don't pray together. If Jesus is sweet to you, enjoy the Bible. Read the Bible. Pray together. If you, measure, if you measure Christian maturity by Christian activity, you're settling for Georgia peaches. The other thing is, also, don't feel insecure about all the people who... Like, make us so stinking insecure with everything that they do. If they make you, if, if other people make you think Jesus is not enough, I have to supplement what Jesus is doing or what Jesus has done, then it's illegitimate. False religion clings to shadows instead of substance and defines itself by shadows instead of substance. But it also measures maturity, uh, it measures Christian maturity by your work instead of by Jesus. Works. The second thing it does, it measures maturity by your work instead of Jesus' works. It grades our experience of spiritual fullness by your works, by your activities, by your observances. And this is why Paul spends so much time and repeats himself in this warning. Don't be carried away. Don't be led captive. Don't let judgment pass on you. Don't let someone disqualify you on these things. Why is he so concerned? Because these things have the appearance of self-made religion. These things look... Really good. If you walked on the campus and you were thinking, I want to find a Christian group that's really going to lead me toward Jesus. And you found one where everybody woke up at 4.30 and read the Bible. Nobody watched TV. Nobody ate good food, a.k.a. sweets or food that's bad for you. And all of them were very fit and took care of their bodies and went to every service on every Sunday. And they were in four Bible study prayer groups and they never went to any parties. It would blow our minds. We'd be like, oh my gosh, those are the most serious Christians ever. But those are not marks of Christian fullness. I'm not saying they're bad. I'm saying they don't necessarily mark out a Christian. This can go all kinds of ways. Some of us have kind of bought into that kind of Lifeway Christian bookstore Christianity that I kind of described. Um, 
But then there are also, you know, some of us are savvy enough to be the careless Calvinist. And so our self-righteousness is not Lifeway Christian Bookstore Christianity. Um, our self-righteousness is we've, we've figured out that the no alcohol rule is lame and that the no party rule is lame and that reading your Bible doesn't make God love you. Um, and so your hyper spirituality is what you don't do. I'm better than them because I don't have to do those things. You're still setting yourself apart by what you do or don't do. And you're not clinging to the substance of religion, namely Jesus. And that's really the question. What sets you apart? What about your lifestyle sets you apart? What is it that you have to boast in? If I ask you what marks out or makes a successful Christian, what's your list? And we can go both ways on any kind of issues because some people, well, I'm a diligent student. You know, that's what it means to be mature. And then there are other people who are saying, I'm not obsessed with grades, so I'm more mature, right? Then, uh, you know, I work, I take care of my body, so I'm mature, I take care of important things. And other people are like, I'm not obsessed with my body, so I'm more mature. I have people skills, I like making everybody comfortable, and I pursue people. Other are like, you know what, I don't have to make anybody happy. You know, I have the right theology. You know what, I'm not into theology, it's divisive. You see, we can go either way and make anything into self-righteousness. We can make anything into our works. Here's the question. What would your friends say set you apart? How would they answer that question? Here's another way to ask it. If someone were to ask you, is so-and-so a Christian, how would you answer that question? Whoever it is. Is so-and-so a Christian? If your response is, yes, they go to church, you haven't understood anything Paul has said. If your response is, yes, they don't drink, you don't know what it means to be a Christian. I'm not saying you're not a Christian, but I'm saying you've got to kind of step back and enter your mind and say, okay, I don't think I know what Paul's talking about. John Owen, in my favorite book, Mortification of Sin, talks about mortification, which is putting our sin to death. And he says this, Mortification from a self-strength carried on by ways of self-invention unto the end of self-righteousness is the soul and substance of all false religion in the world. Rules don't change you. If we were going to approach ministry and the gospel that way, then that would mean when you walk into my office and, oh, I'm struggling with anger. And that would mean that my best pastoral advice to you would be, okay, well, let's open up the Bible and see what the rules say. The rules say, don't be angry. That's the rule. I'm struggling with lust. Okay, let's open up the Bible. Don't lust. Is that helpful? That's the way we kind of live in a lot of our friendships, right? Friends are struggling with things, and so what we do is we pick out what's bad, and we say, listen, you've got to stop doing bad things, and you've got to start doing good things. We're handing each other rules. And nobody really changes, because rules don't change you. Really what the, point, what the rules do is they point us to the fact that we just need somebody to save us. What Christian fullness is found in is found in Jesus and it's resting in the things that He's done. It's resting in Jesus with His death. In verse 12, after, we, after the circumcision, He says, "...and having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Him from the dead." What does it mean to be buried with Him in baptism? It's an important question. All right, when you join a club or a fraternity or anything that has an initiation, a lot of times what you'll do is you actually receive a sign. Receive a pendant or a pen or something like that. 
And one of the things that that sign signifies is not just your entrance into that community. It also actually signifies your solidarity or your union or your unity with the other people in it. Baptism actually signifies a couple of things, but one of the things Paul's talking about here is he's saying you have been buried with him in baptism. Namely, Jesus has been baptized and you have been baptized and this is a sign of y'all's union together. It's a sign you both wear. Signs are not the reality. This is not Elizabeth's commitment to me, but it certainly is a sign of her commitment to me. Baptism is not your union with Christ, but it points us to our union with Christ in His death. And we are no longer slaves to the works of law, and we no longer depend on the works of the law for life, because our life is in Jesus. He has died our death, and we are raised with Him, and we are given new life in Jesus. Christian fullness is recognized that it is Jesus who has forgiven us, and who has made us clean, and wiped away the debt of our sin. And in Him, and Him alone, is life. A Christian has nothing to boast in. What sets us apart is nothing but Jesus. A Christian has the wonderful but humble place of saying, I have nothing except that someone died for me. False religion focuses on shadows instead of substance, and it measures maturity by our activity instead of Jesus' work. And the other thing it says, it says, it's true because I can feel it instead of it's true because God says it. In verse 18, another aspect of the teaching in Colossae that Paul's warning them against, let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism. That's these kind of rules of self-denial. But also the worship of angels going on in detail about visions. Now what's he talking about here? He's not talking about worshiping angels themselves, angels as the object of our worship. What he's talking about is the worship of angels, actually worship that angels do when angels are actually the subject and God is the object of their worship. In the Bible, when Ezekiel is a prophet, who is a prophet, so we should be careful to think that we're always going to have the same experiences as Ezekiel, when he's called by God to be a prophet, he actually views angels worshiping God. In Revelation, when John, who is also a prophet, begins to see what's kind of unfolding in heaven, God lets him see into heaven and see angels worship God. What the... What the uh, the teachers in Colossae are saying is they're going on in this stuff about worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, about seeing angels. Now, what are they talking about? They're talking about a powerful worship experience. And he's saying, don't let anybody disqualify you by saying it's only legit if you have a really powerful worship experience every time. Don't let anybody disqualify you and say you don't have the fullness of religion until your worship experience is really emotional every time. Because it's really cool and because it's really powerful, that doesn't mean it's legitimate. In fact, Paul warns us about it. And if you think that that's what makes worship legitimate, then you're in danger of not understanding everything that's offered to us in Christ and you're also in danger of leading other people astray. Our powerful experiences are not adequate judges of what's true. The experience you have at the amazing service can actually be chemically replicated. And you can also have it at a U2 concert. People have the same, they shout, they feel power, they feel connected to everybody there, it's awesome, they raise their hands. Is it always a faithful testimony to truth? No. Things are true, and we can trust them to be true when God says them. 
the fullness of God is to be had is to be had by those who by faith rest in Jesus. And we can say that with a hundred percent assurance on the days we don't even feel it. And there's something there's something really comforting about that fact. That on the days that we don't feel it, on the way on the days we don't feel its power, because God said it, we can still know it to be true, that all the fullness in Christ is ours. If it's only true on the days that you can feel it, then what happens when the feeling fades? What happens when the music changes? When you go tired of kind of the fabricated experience, then all of a sudden you find yourself kind of insecure and you don't know if it was true. We've all had mountaintop experiences. They're not all bad, but I've had several, and one of the frustrations of it is when you come home weeks afterwards, you don't have that feeling anymore. And it makes you insecure and almost a little bit scared. Where did it go? It may be even angry at the world around you. It's because our confidence about what was true was in our experience and not in what God has definitively said in His Word. In Christ, the fullness of deity dwells. And when you, by faith, rest in Jesus, all that fullness is yours. You are forgiven. You are alive in Christ. You are no longer indebted to the law. How do we know? Not because we always feel it, because God has said it. And that should be a relief. Here's the question. How have you elevated your experience, your I just thinks, your I just feels, above Scripture as a trustworthy guide for life? False religion focuses on shadows instead of substance. It measures fullness by works instead of Jesus' work. And it says it's true because you can feel it as opposed to it's true because God has said it. And lastly, it's powerless. It's powerless to give the freedom that's actually offered in Christ. The whole passage sits inside these parentheses, verse 8 and verse 23. See that no one takes you captive. Verse 23, they are of no value in stopping the indulgence, the captivity of the flesh. The whole passage sits inside that parentheses. It holds you captive under the system, under the formula, under the technique that's called religion. And it will have no power for actually stopping the very thing that we're enslaved to, namely the flesh. Rules don't change us. And all we're doing in our friendships is we're saying, stop doing the bad things and start doing the good things. That has no power to change anybody. It might change the way we look on the outside a little bit, but our heart hasn't changed. And don't get, we're wary of techniques and formulas. Here, I'm going to actually give you one. You don't have to try this. But I want everybody for a week to eliminate this phrase from your spiritual vocabulary and see how it makes you think about things. Use it for other things. Use it for school. Use it for work. Whatever it is. When you're talking spiritually, eliminate this phrase from your vocabulary. I've got to work on that. The answer to your struggles is not new rules and it's not more effort. Stop saying, I've got to work on X. I've got to work on anger. I've got to work on lust. I've got to work on lying. And every time you're tempted to say that, you feel it coming to your lips. Stop. Just try it for a week. Back up and say this. I need Jesus. I need Jesus to forgive me. I need Jesus to change me. I need Him to give me a new heart. I need His love to become more clearly displayed to me. I need somebody to save me. Not, I've got to work on that. This is the fundamental difference between I've got to work on that and I need Jesus. I've got to work on that is slavery. 
You'll never change, and what you'll do is you'll add rules, and you'll add rules, and you'll add rules, and you'll never change, and your correction technique for you and your friends will be stop that, stop the bad things, and do the good things. That is a commitment to a life of captivity under the law. What Christ offers is freedom from the captivity of the law. The law is real, and what it does is not point us to what we need to work on. It points us to the reality that all our work is worthless. The way Isaiah says it in Isaiah 64, 6, even our righteous deeds are filthy rags. And so our solution ceases to become more rules, and I've got to work on that. And we recognize we need somebody who can save us, and who can heal us, and who can change us, and who can love us. Someone who can change us from the inside out, who can work change in our hearts because our intricate plans on changing from the outside in by imposing new rules is slavery. And it doesn't change anybody. So this is the final application. Repent and rest. Rest. Stop playing the game of religion. Stop living the shadow of religion. Don't be deluded. Your rules are not changing anybody. Stop trying to work on it. Stop disqualifying everybody else by your rules. The only thing that qualifies any of us, the only thing that frees any of us from the tyranny of our methods and our techniques and our formulas and our rules, the only body who can save us is Jesus. Go to Jesus. What we're doing all semester is really trying to discover what it means to find our life in that vital union with Christ. That's the way, kind of the theological term of our relationship with Jesus. Vital, life-giving union with Christ. That's the vine and the branches language of John 15. That engrafted into Him and our life coming from Him, we in fact do bear fruit. And it's fruit that honors Him and glorifies Him. And actually comes from Him. Everybody's looking to something for life. We're all doing that. And Jesus is the only one that can give it. And He gives it graciously. And He gives it fully. And there's rest. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank You for Your Word. And I thank You that even when we are prone to wander and even when we are uh, prone to chase false religions, dear God, that You continue to call us back. And I pray that you would call us back tomorrow and the next day and the next day and the next day. And I thank you that your patience and your compassion, and not just your patience and compassion, but your pursuit of us is enduring, dear Lord. And I thank you that in you we are now free and we can rest. In your name we pray. Amen.